welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Be Bold America is a live bi-weekly talk show for those who are motivated to step out with the bold actions necessary to reunite this country, fight for democracy, and learn what they can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to return to our democratic republic. Our future depends on it. Our program today is the five real conspiracies you need to know about. The world is awash in a deluge of dangerous conspiracy theories. While millions of people are spellbound by false conspiracy theories, the real ones that are wrecking our world go about their business unheeded. One of the most harmful results of these bogus conspiracy theories is that they help deflect people's attention from the real conspiracies that are systemically damaging billions of people around the world, destroying the living earth, and, if left unchecked, may drive our entire civilization to collapse. We have big things to do. Our bold guest today is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is an author whose writings investigate the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current existential crisis. His recent book, The Patterning Instinct, a Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, explores the way humans have made meaning of the cosmos from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. Jeremy is founder of the nonprofit Leology Institute, dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the earth. It is such a pleasure to have you on the program again, Jeremy. Welcome back to Be Bold America. Thank you so much, Jill. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you again and to have another conversation with you. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I was thinking, Jeremy, before we delve into the five real conspiracies we all need to know about, would you take a minute and tell us about the Leology Institute? And am I saying that properly? You are. You, oh, you're good. Saying great. And thanks, because oftentimes people get that. <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those tricky words to pronounce. Well, it's a nonprofit that I set up some years ago to really foster the a different kind of worldview, a different way of making sense of the world than the one that is uh, we take for granted nowadays and that is driving our civilization to collapse, basically. Um, and the word leology actually comes from a traditional Chinese word, li, which means the principles that connect everything in the universe. And so the idea behind leology is it's like the ology part is like a study of. So it's like a, a really an embodied study uh, of the principles that connect all of us and connect all things around us. And so it's very much uh, a worldview of integration that it tries to foster. Well, that is very exciting. I may have to join. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, the, talking about principles and what connects us all is, you know, I think more important now than ever. You know, in your article, which I read, uh, The Five Real Conspiracies You Need to Know About, in your article, you began back in 1947. Would you walk us through that background? Yes, we sure. Well, this was the, the first of the five that, um, that kind of kicked off in 1947, which is this fascinating um, thing, because it, it's like a real-life conspiracy in the sense that it's a small group of, you know, white men, um, white, white elder men meeting together at this place in Switzerland called Mont Pelerin, like a luxury resort. And they set up this society called the Mont Pelerin Society. And its whole purpose was to spread the ideology of neoliberalism through the world. 
And what's so amazing is back to when, in 1947, when they set it up, and then the 10 or 20 years following that, their ideas seemed absolutely fanatical and crazy to almost anybody. Their ideas were that you should like, dismantle regulations of society, that the concept of individual liberty should be the only thing that eclipses all other considerations of things like fairness, justice, anything like that. But what is so amazing is it was really one of the most successful conspiracies of the modern world in that um, within three decades, they had infiltrated their ideas through academic institutions, political centers of power, media, um, all over the world, so that by the time Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher got elected, um, right there in the kind of late 1970s, um, they, their ideas were, had been sort of preformed for them through all this work that they got done. So now what we've now taken as granted now over three decades of these ideas going around the world, um, these crazy fanatical ideas have now become mainstream, ideas that, um, that there should be a market in everything, that even things like education or things of, of, that are truly like part of this great human creation of meaningful value we've, we've done through community over millennia should be transferred to some marketplace as if it's some sort of, a, you know, as if kids... Minds should be just traded like gold billion. Well, one thing um, is, I wanted to define neoliberalism because many people are confused because liberalism is in it, but it's really conservatism, isn't it? <laughs> I know it gets it gets kind of complicated. The yes. whole thing about neoconservative, neoliberal, liberal, and all that stuff. Right. Basically, the 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 word neoliberalism it was defined really to. Um, talk about a new kind of liberalism. Um, and really, the idea about liberalism really was just kind of riffing off 19th century ideas about freedom and individual liberty. And the idea of neoliberalism is that uh, it took some really good ideas about how people should be free to express their beliefs, whether about religion or about political different views, all that kind of stuff. And it took this concept of individual liberty and made it the all-encompassing idea that everything should be um, uh, sort of subsidiary to. And they came up with this kind of theory that uh, Milton Friedman did a great job of uh, you know, getting into like mainstream economics now, which is that somehow if you just let individuals do whatever they want, regardless of any constraints. This actually ends up being the best thing for society. It leads to this kind of free market where everything gets um, proportionally distributed in the most efficient way. And, but, and what's interesting about their whole idea is that as they got to be successful and centers of power and big corporations um, realized where, where the sort of uh, power was in politics, the, their very ideas themselves got kind of shifted because we no longer even have a free market. We basically have uh, a market um, that is mostly driven by oligopolies, where massive corporations essentially um, just buy themselves into power. And the ability for people to actually be free in their choices and what they do has been hugely constrained. So the great, one of the great ironies is that the very thing that they claim to be behind, their success has undermined. Oh, that is stunning. Well, then, the first conspiracy you have here is a conspiracy to turn the world into a giant marketplace 
for the benefit of the wealthy elite. I know you touched on that, but tell us more. Well, so so that really is this um, uh, this Mont Pelerin society conspiracy. But and so we've described this kind of ideology behind it, and and because what we haven't uh, touched on is how both how successful it's been in the world at large and the terrible destructive effects it's had on everyone. So um, through this this belief system in individual liberty that then goes into free marketplace, that then becomes part of the political dominance, they've managed to like cripple trade unions, like social safety nets that used to be considered to be an essential part of a civilized society, just torn up. And um, there's this crazed idea that somehow you should keep reducing tax rates for the wealthy. And so we've led to, we're in this world now where you have these mega billionaires and it's so extreme that it's hard to sort of get your head around this, but um, the wealthiest 26 people in the world, these billionaires, own as much wealth as half the entire world's population. And that, that statistic was actually from a couple of years ago. Right now, I'm sure the number is even fewer than that. And, and uh, what happens is it's this, this process that has developed now where the wealth um, accumulates, the wealth empowers more wealth. So the gap between the, like, uh, in fact, I, I have a graph in this article, the top 0.01% of the country um, versus uh, the bottom 90% has massively increased. That gap is about eight times larger than it was back in the early 80s. And as a result of this incredible um, this inequality that we really have never even seen in history. I mean, um, it's a somewhat equivalent to the robber barons of the early 20th century, but it's really gotten so extreme it's even more out of control than that with these mega billionaires. And, of course, with COVID, um, that number has increased even more. Like, there's been a roughly 30% increase in the wealth of these um, mega billionaires right now. Um, even while we've had, you know, 200,000-plus Americans have died from coronavirus and something like 50 million have lost their jobs. Well, it also sounds... Um the Montpellier, am I pronouncing that correctly? Montpellier right. Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also sounds very Ian Randian, which is a Republican Absolutely. mentor. Yes, and she was very much connected with even with some of the people from this Montpellier ah. Society. Um, she, I don't know if she was ever actually a member, but um, it, there's no question her novels. And um, her ability to sort of um, get people emotionally invested in these ideas was a significant part of their success. Oh, boy. Well, then, um, so the second conspiracy is by transnational corporations to turn billions of people into addicts. Yes. And um, for this one, we need to go back even further in time. Uh, Really to the 1920s or so, when um, the United States began to foster this idea of consumerism, which was a really a brand new idea that had never really um, existed in the world until that time. Um, and they, what they did was they wanted to um, use the fact of people becoming consumers and try to make as much 
money as they could for their clients who were um, corporations, some of whom became these great transnationals now. But what was so fascinating is this particular conspiracy I'm talking about um, was one that was led by somebody called Edward Bernays, who it turns out was actually Sigmund Freud's nephew. Oh so Sigmund Freud at that time was just coming out with these new ideas about psychoanalysis and looking at the deep unconscious of human beings, brand new ideas. And, um, uh, yeah, he was a deeply ethical person. Um, but this nephew of his, Edward Bernays, took his ideas and got so excited about this realization that he could um, use them to manipulate people's unconscious, to get them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. And um, so they talked about we, we can shift um, uh, people, we can shift the culture of America so people can be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the others have been actually consumed. And so his partner talked about we must shape a new mentality. Um, and the mentality was that men's desires must overshadow their needs. So they were quite... Um, clear, and they, they sort of signed on many uh, um, sort of deadly corporations as their clients, um, that they were, in the words of Bernays, um, actually the, the sort of unseen, uh, like an invisible government that's the true ruling power of this country, molding people's minds, forming their tastes, pulling the wires that control the public mind. Um, and Bernays was the one who really got this notion of marketing as we know it today and going, where basically marketing is designed not to tell people that there's a new product out there that helps them, you know, that basically the better mousetrap or a, a car that drives further um, with more fuel efficiency or whatever. But what marketing is really about is getting to people's deep unconscious needs. As human beings, you know, we've evolved with needs, either for physical needs like sugar or salt or whatever that might be, or um, cultural needs, like we need to feel status in community. We need to feel respected. Um, we don't want to feel insecure. And um, so those are the things they target in people to manipulate them to do things against their better interests um, just to make money. And we're so used to it now that we don't sort of take it for granted. Well, isn't that what, what the world is about? But these were brand new ideas that Bernays came up with in the 1920s. Mm. Well, I'm going to, I have a thought about that, but I'll pick up after our, our um, station ID. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online from the KSQD.org homepage. Catch up on previous Be Bold America programs by visiting our KSQD webpage or subscribe to our podcast by using your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Jill Cody. KSQD thanks the following recent donors who support our programming in this difficult time. Douglas Holzman, Albert McKinney, Sandra Chirk, Rachel Goodman, Rebecca Royston, and Karen Ehrlich. You inspire us to give our very best at 90.7 FM. May you also inspire others to donate on our website, ksqd.org. Today, our topic is the five real conspiracies you need to know about. We're speaking with Jeremy Lent, author of The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, and who has an upcoming book titled The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. To learn more, visit jeremylent.com. That's J E 
R-E-M-Y-L-E-N-T.com. So, Jeremy, what I was uh, going to pick up on is that an entire, as you were talking about with marketing, an entire advertising industry has been built around this. And I know they even use brain science to try to get to those endorphins. And if um, I think people that have had children, very early age, you get the buy me that, buy me that. This is uh, programmed um, when they're toddlers, Correct. That is completely true, and um, and again, and that's where this kind of conditioning of the brain is so powerful that as little kids, we of course we don't know better, and as we get older, uh, we sort of think that this is what life is about: is just to consume and to um, sort of have status through our products as a result of that. In fact, there's this amazing quote from. Uh, somebody who uh, was the chief executive of General Mills, uh, where he got got caught saying, uh, basically, when it comes to targeting kid consumers, we at General Mills believe in getting them early and having them for life. Oh, wow! Um, it's so scary, and this is what they do. And in, and it's even worse um, outside of the United States in many ways because um, in other countries in the global south. Uh, people may be a little bit less sophisticated and in sort of uh, or more vulnerable, basically, to um, this kind of power of this mind control. So in South Asia now, and it's estimated that half of the children are either undernourished or overweight because of this advertising that tells them to spend what little money they have, you know, on junk food, basically, just like this General Mills uh, CEO intended. And to your point about this sort of deep psychology, really with the rise now of the Internet as a way to manipulate people's minds, this consumer marketing that's been around for a century has now become even more powerful, sort of individually targeted to each person. Um, And uh, there's even an actual lab that's been uh, developed not far from where, where you are in Stanford, where this um, somebody who's like a sort of modern-day Bernays, if you will. His name is B.J. Fogg, and he's somebody who created this uh, kind of ominously named Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, um, where he's actually, he actually t- teaches these new um, tech people who uh, end up creating the, um, the apps that now dominate our lives, how to infiltrate themselves into our minds so we get addicted to those kind of like buttons and how to um, get us just enough uh, sort of interactive so that our sort of dopamine hormones um, sort of go through our body every time we see the like thing and then we feel bad because we've left out for a few minutes. And, um, and for kids growing up now, uh, this, this kind of reality is the only one that they know um, with a potentially massive impact on the quality of their lives and the quality of our society. Um, there's actually a great uh, documentary film out that I'm sure some people have seen called The Social Dilemma. Yes, that's uh, excellent. It goes into this in quite some depth, and is, I really recommend to anybody, especially anybody who has children, uh, yes. <laughs> where they want to really realize how much they need to protect against them. And one of the fascinating things that comes out of that is the people who develop these um, really uh, kind of creepy technologies, they are the ones who are most assiduous to say their kids don't go anywhere close to social media. They don't let them anywhere close because they know how dangerous it is. 
Wow, that's quite a life to be living, um, not really living in alignment there, do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Exactly. You know, and the bottom line for this is really uh, making a profit, consumerism, um, you know, the advertising industry and going after people's uh, uh, brain, the brain science to be able to addict people, whether it's to an app or to its to a um, food product. It's... it's um, you know, it turns us into a product. The human being is now yeah. a product for them, right? You're so right, Jill. I'm really glad you bring that up because the thing we have to look at, you know, it's easy enough to say, say oh, the Internet is bad or Facebook is bad or all these things. But actually, that's not, not even the case. The Internet itself um, is, uh, is, is, a, is a tool, is a vehicle for good or bad. But we have to look at the context and the underlying context of all of this stuff from Bernays to the General Mills, to the modern Internet, is um, the capitalist economy that all of these two new technologies um, arise in. And so even if many of these uh, technologists who created these products um, and uh, the social media um, powers, they were thinking that they were doing good. They were excited about the possibility of connecting the world and actually um, really cared about making the world a better place. But as soon as you try to develop any technology or any idea within the for-profit capitalist system, where basically you end up with shareholders who demand continual increase in profit, any ethical beliefs you have, any desire to do good, ultimately gets like thrown out the window um, because you, you just don't have a choice other than to optimize for your um, shareholders. And that's the thing that ultimately we need to take the best the look at most closely. It's kind of the elephant in the room because it's so around us. It's been around us for so, um, so many decades now that people don't even think there is an alternative to the way to structure society. Um, but there are alternatives. And one of the most valuable things we can do is recognize that this is the underlying system that it can corrupt just about anything um, as soon as, um, as it rises within that place where the shareholders want to make more money from whatever it is. Wow. Well, then, the third conspiracy uh, consp is to plunder the global south for the benefit of the global north. What do you mean by that? Yes, right. Well, this one, you know, we've been going sort of further and further back in history uh, for some of these conspiracies. Um, and this one really goes all the way back to um, almost 500 years ago, if you can believe it. Um, and it began with what was called the Treaty of Saragossa, all the way back in 1529 between Spain and Portugal. And um, they met and they agreed to, that they, they did, wouldn't um, battle with each other as they're beginning to um, you know, develop these ships that could sort of travel the world. But what they would do is they'd carve up the whole world into, they sort of drew a line on the map and they said, okay, Portugal, you get this part, which is basically um, Eastern Africa and Southeast Asia, and Spain gets that part, which is essentially the Americas. Um, and, and it was a conspiracy to basically plunder anything they could find um, outside of the European zone among um, any society that didn't have the ability to defend themselves for their own wealth. Now, you could argue... 
it's not exactly technically a conspiracy in the sense that it wasn't like this kind of secret, um, like some of the, uh, like we sort of generally think of conspiracies. Um, and I accept that. Um, but it was a conspiracy in the sense that it was this notion of these powerful groups getting together and working out how they are going to damage basically um, heedless to any kind of ethical interest, how they're going to exploit, damage, and plunder uh, essentially any other part of the world outside of where they, they lived. Now, it may have started 500 years ago with the treaty. What did you call the treaty again? It was, it was called the Treaty of Saragossa. Saragossa. And, you know, not many people um, know about that nowadays, but at that time it was... It was uh, you know, a legally binding treaty, and um, they were incredibly successful. And what they did was they, um, the Portuguese in Southeast Asia, um, they just kind of plundered and they disrupted systems that had been uh, going on there for centuries. And the thing to understand, they didn't even, it wasn't even that they had uh, superior technology compared to, say, the Chinese or um, other uh, um, advanced groups in Southeast Asia, but nobody was ready for a different kind of um, ethical system, the system of absolute um, exploitation, of just uh, pl- breaking rules, just basically doing anything, cheating, lying, killing, just to make money. And to the Portuguese, that was what she did. And uh, people was just so, it, it just wasn't part of the normal, of the, like any way of thinking about that's what humans do. And that's why they were so successful. And, that's, and um, of course, when Spain came to the, what they called the New World, uh, which wasn't so new for the people who had lived there for many thousands of years, right. <laughs> um, there they did have the benefit of you know, superior technology and, again, just a mindset that the people in those countries couldn't even begin to think about. You know, so Montezuma in Mexico, when uh, Cortez came there, you know, they, they invited them into their city um, to, uh, because it just didn't occur to them that they could be so treacherous that they would then, like, sort of turn on them when their guard was down, because that's not even the way... I mean, they, were, they, they had wars, um, but they conducted wars in a sense of, uh, of honor, and a sense of, like, you do things in a certain way. And this kind of European uh, approach to total exploitation above anything else was something that they just weren't ready for. Well, it started 500 years ago, but it seems like it's still occurring today. I mean, we've had thousands and thousands of refugees coming to this country from Central American countries and countries in the South that have been ruined, and I think many have been because our country has exploited their resources, and um, and they're very difficult to live in, where the gangs have taken over and the governments aren't very strong or the governments are, corru- are corrupt. Um, so are we still seeing this today? We are, Jill, and I'm really glad you mentioned that, because it's not just a matter... It is important to understand the history, but it's not just one for the history books, um, because really, ever since the Second World War, we sort of feel we're living in a more civilized society, maybe, than back in those... Um, days, centuries ago. But the reality is that the U.S., the British, and the French, uh, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, instituted this world order that continues to suck wealth out of the global south. Um, And that's one of the things that's really hard to um, get our heads around, because we're so used to talking about, um, oh, how much aid should the global north 
um, give uh, these countries that are, we sort of think of as the developing countries as if they need to sort of develop to um, sort of where we're at. The reality is they got ransacked. Um, by the global north over centuries. And now you have things like the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organizations, all controlled by the wealthy countries of the global north that set terms of trade and actually um, force these other countries in the global south to, to do things basically according to what um, the global north wants, according to rules that the transnational corporations put down, to continue to flow wealth from the south to the north, it's estimated that roughly $3 trillion a year actually flows from the south to the north in net global flows. And so even right now, uh, every year, the south gets even poorer at the expense of the wealthy countries in the north. And that's why we're seeing the refugees at our borders by the thousands. It's just exactly. stunning. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Our topic is the five real conspiracies you need to know about. And we're speaking with Jeremy Lent, founder of the Leology Institute and author of The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meeting. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Hello, K-Squid listeners. I'm Todd Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program. Heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM. Weekdays at 4 p.m. That's progressive talking conversation with me, Tom Hartman. Weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you're it. Now, back to our bold and impressive guest, Jeremy Lent. Well, now we're on conspiracy number four, conspiracy to hide the effects of climate breakdown for corporate profit. Yes, well, this one is a slightly more recent than the others we've talked about, and in many ways is the most sort of dastardly, heinous conspiracy, if you will, of all of them, because it has been devised so cynically, um, and the people who are responsible for it, um, some of them still alive in positions of power, and really, but in any sort of moral society, they should be that um, they should be jailed uh, for the rest of their lives. So this is the one of the fossil fuel executives who actually knew about the reality of climate change being human induced as long as far back as 19. 19- 68, so that's something like over 50 years ago, and they deliberately concealed this knowledge, and they deliberately um, confused and obfuscated the whole public uh, discussion on it, so that they could uh, basically rake in trillions of dollars over these decades at the expense of the, our whole living earth, at the expense of the future of humanity, the, uh, the, like risking the future of civilization, and the, the horrendous and destruction of the natural world, and to, like you say, the global climate refugees that are just beginning now and will only increase in the future. So the, the actual moral heinousness of this is something that is hard to even comprehend. I, I'm aware of what you're talking about um, with Exxon uh, executives, and, and it just makes me livid every time I hear about it. Um, so conspiracy... 
Number five is to grow the global economy indefinitely. Yes, and that one, uh, if you wanted to be literal about the sort of conspiracy word, you could say, well, is it, well to what extent is this a conspiracy? But it is, in a way, is in the sense that um, we are, have to recognize that we are all um, part of this kind of a conspiracy of silence, if you will, to not be focusing on the biggest issue that is putting at risk, you know, the entire flourishing of um, future human generations and, and actually is even causing the sixth great extinction of species on Earth um, since life began billions of years ago, um, but this one as a result of our human activities. So, uh, the, really what we can describe it as a, is a conspiracy to sort of not do the things that we need to do, to not change our uh, society in the deepest ways that need to be changed in order to preempt the destruction that we are accelerating to. And, um, yeah, I, I'm happy to go into some of those details of what I'm talking about, if you want. Do, yes, go right ahead. Want to go on that. Yes, please do. Um, yeah, yeah. Well I, I, well, I think one of the things that we need to realize, like so much of the the sort of media conversations we have or just the things we're looking at day to day, even when they're really important, um, you know, things like uh, what is the new um, Democratic administration going to do in the next few years in terms of, um, you know, shifting the unfairness of our society or, um, you know, changing policies or whatever. We have to recognize that as long as we are living in a global economy that continues to believe in growing, from one year to the next at an exponential rate. And, and as long as our society is based on this kind of growth imperative and the imperative of shareholders can, to continue to increase their returns from their corporate investments one year to the next, we are literally destroying the living earth. And there was a report just recently that the World Wildlife Fund um, put out, which um, tells us that 60 8% of animal populations have declined. Um, there's been a decline of 68% in the past 50 years. And if you look at some places, like just North, and if you look at South America as a, as a continent, um, their animal populations have declined 94% in the last 50 years. We're really looking at this shift of um, human domination of the natural world to so, such an extreme way that the, the living earth is barely, uh, is barely surviving. And what's so astonishing is that the global gross domestic product, like all the stuff that gets produced and consumed around, around the world, which is responsible for this, is actually expected to triple by 2060. So, I mean, if we're looking at this much destruction right now and, and tripling this, well, many people more and more are saying that our civilization is headed for collapse at this rate. And um, some people argue, well, actually, maybe we should focus on this concept of green growth. You know, there's got to be a way to use technology so we can still keep growing but um, reduce our impact on, uh, on the environment. And that's really just been shown to be a myth. The reality is that we have to look at these these 
stark realities, we have to say that our society has to shift to a different kind of society that is not based on wealth accumulation, that's not based on economic growth, but is based on things that would lead us to be much happier. Basically, the quality of life, the quality of our community, rather than just buying more. Well, you're leading right into um, a listener question I got. Uh, And the question was, why, given the long-term historical ties you bring to your thoughts, why, despite this, we continue to spiral into a grim future that no one, not even Republicans, well, mostly Republicans, want? Why is there too little attention paid to how and why, despite all the knowledge and science and common sense we bring to these issues? What a great question, uh, So, and thank you so much to whoever asked that. Um, and I think that um, one major reason why is that the kind of short-term um, profit uh, um, focus on domination and exploitation that we've been talking about, that went all the way back to Western European ideas 500 years ago, has become the dominant mode of thought and the dominant um, way in which our society works right now, so that we don't even realize that there are other options. Um, And I think a large part of that is because the corporate-owned media and only focuses our attention on the short term. They want more profits, and so they focus on things that will make us uh, sort of interested in something the next day or the next week or the next month at most. Shareholders just want short-term profits. So it's this kind of deep short-term thinking embedded into our society. Um, And I think ultimately we have to recognize that as long as this, these transnational corporations dominate our entire, not just the economy, but our media um, and global governance and through corruption at this point that dominate most, um, most actual national governments. And the changes we need will not happen. They will only happen once enough of us uh, actually start and feeling into the needs of future generations. We'll start looking at our own grandchildren and actually start realizing that they are going to be growing up in a world that um, could be just um, so devastating that the quality of their lives might never um, be able to um, reach out to the sort of the positive experiences that we've had in, in, the, in the past few decades and realize that for their benefit and for the benefit of all life on Earth, we have to shift some of these structures uh, that we just take for granted now. Well, to bring this uh, to democracy, none of these five conspiracies, uh, none of them seem to foster democracy. Right? Right. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, every one of them are very much against democracy. Um, But I think it's also important to really think about what we even mean by that word, democracy. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, um, even if, you know, I mean, right now, of course, anybody who cares about democracy um, is breathing a sigh of relief in the fact that we don't have basically a fascist coup takeover Mm -hmm. as the United States right now that many of us were afraid of. But this is, for starters, uh, you know, we don't even know how 
how much it, we have a brief window where we could try to like change something around. But unless we start doing things differently, we might be looking at a similar risk four or eight years um, from now. But even what we call a democracy right now has been purchased um, by the big corporations. Yes. The very notion of um, corporate personhood, of this idea of um, the, a corporation which really, if it were a person, would have to be recognized as being a psychopath um, with just this one aim, one goal of maximizing profit above anything else. You know, and in, in human terms, that, the name for that kind of person is a psychopath. But these um, psychopathic entities are given the power to basically buy um, the political uh, results that they want. And by owning the media, <clears throat> and even if we have... Uh, and even something close to a fair vote, which we're so many steps away because of the gerrymandering and all, you know, the constitutional um, structures that don't even allow a majority of Americans to actually win, uh, you know, to sort of get the person that they want. Um, but even if those things were changed, um, the mindset that arises from the local radio stations owned by, say, Sinclair Network, for example, which has this, has bought up radio stations across the country and give them um, lines that they that the um, news broadcasters have to um, speak. Propaganda. Just, it's yeah, their propaganda. propaganda. Nothing other than that. That's right. Um, and that's what has led, of course, to so many of these divisions in our society, where the, the very sense of reality that uh, much of our society um, has is so far from objective reality that it's as if we're living in a world of mass delusion. So there's many, many steps that we need to take to move back to a, um, the potential for real democracy. Um, and so I think it's important as I call these out, not to, um, to sort of tear our hair out in despair, but to recognize that these, every one of these steps we need to look at and we need to sort of block and tackle and we need to recognize that the path back to real democracy has to go through each of those steps. Well, and I, I um, would be remiss if I didn't bring up QAnon because it is a recent phenomenon conspiracy that is just um, wild internet-based. I mean, they don't even know who's started this. It could be a Russian bot back in 2017. And uh, so what? why are these conspiracy uh, theories like QAnon have become so powerful? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think actually it comes down to a lot of these other real conspiracies that we've been talking about. So, for example, and the fact of this, the neoliberalism that has really destroyed the safety net of economies and caused so many people to really live lives of economic despair, um, leaves people just so frustrated and wanting to look for a reason why. But because the corporate media is designed to not let them know that it's what the real reasons are for this, um, then they'll turn to any kind of um, answer because we have um, what I call a patterning instinct as human beings. We have to find some way of patterning meaning into things that go wrong. So that's one big reason. And then on top of that, of course, is the, um, the silos the sort of cultural silos that have been created through the social media, the once again have been done, um, not because it has to be that way, but because they're profit-based. And so they've learned that actually false news 
and actually gets more clicks, like multiple times more clicks than real news. So they allow that to happen in order to sell more advertising dollars, and which has led to this um, creation of absolute silos of different realities, even when um, the objective reality is there and available for people if they want to actually uh, look more deeply. So I think these are some of the reasons, um, along with there's a sense of existential despair. People have this feeling of how we're heading towards disaster, but because it's not so easy to actually express that and understand what the reasons are, it's very easy to just follow any kind of crazed and delusional nonsense that at least gives you a sense of some level of security. And community, too. I think that, um, you know, they've created another tribe and so that they get a sense of purpose and meaning from that. Yes, well said. Completely agree. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org homepage or listen to the show's podcast at Be Bold America's webpage. I'm your host, Jill Cody. This Sunday on KSQD, join State of Mind for part two of our series on racism and mental health. We again hear directly from black community members as they discuss how access to physical and mental health support could be improved for people of color. Psychologist Robert Barty speaks with activist Joy Flynn, educator and musician Lisa Taylor, and educator and activist Jason Seals as they share insights gleaned from their personal and professional experiences in our community. They explore how mental health systems are typically unsafe, culturally inappropriate, and invalidating for blacks and people of color. They offer alternative approaches to supporting wellness, along with suggestions for how professionals can improve the accessibility of their services. That's State of Mind, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. here on K-Squid 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Today, our topic is the five real conspiracies you need to know about. And we're speaking with Jeremy Lent, author of the upcoming book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, and the founder of the Leology Institute. To learn more, visit jeremylent.com. So, Jeremy, in the last uh, 10, 12 minutes we have together, it's gone by so fast, um, what would you suggest listeners uh, keep doing, stop doing, start doing, as they relate to the conspiracies that you've written about? Right, sure. Well, thanks. Uh, I think that's so great that you ask these questions, and that's what really matters. And, um, well, what I would uh, suggest to listeners to keep doing, and I have a feeling that uh, that's the people who listen to this radio station or people who are already doing this, so keep doing it, is keep an open mind and really um, try to understand what is actually happening in the world around us. Actually try to look, um, look more deeply than the, whatever the media is telling you that day. Um, you know, keep uh, questioning what are the these kind of power blocks that are causing these problems? And um, really ask yourself, like, what is it that we um, that we can do in relation to that? So, I think that's those are the the that sort of sense of keeping engaged, keeping curious about what's going on, um, is so so important to do. And what 
should listeners stop doing? Well, I think that one thing we can we should stop doing is it's quite easy to demonize the and um, people like you know who do follow a um, some sort of QAnon conspiracy or yeah you know, and there's many people. Um, that yeah, we might know who might have uh, sort of uh, following the sort of pandemic type conspiracy, and uh, you know, saying oh, this this whole um, you know this whole COVID thing is just here to make money for pharmaceutical companies, or we we shouldn't trust the vaccines; it's just going to make Bill Gates more wealthy, and all, all these these kind of things where there is some 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 tiny sliver of truth in some of these things, and then a total. Um, amounts of falsehood, which causes really um, real difficulty. But what we, are, it's very easy to demonize these people and go, oh my God, I can't believe how crazy they are. Or how, um, and that doesn't help anything. That just increases the separation in our society. And um, so I think what's so important is to um, call out these uh, false conspiracy theories for what they are, um, but recognize that the people who are uh, getting behind them are hurting, um, that they're and um, that they're frightened by what's going on around them in in life in general by the, the pandemic. Uh, probably feeling very insecure about their economic uh, situation, um, and in so many ways uh, are getting tormented by the very powers that are um, dominating our society. So I think by stopping that kind of othering of those people and feeling into trying to reach them from a compassionate place, looking for our shared humanity, I think is one of the most important things to do. Well, demonizing is a, is a tool that is so successful. And in your conspiracies, the five conspiracies and the 26 people that have own half of the entire world's population wealth and the others that are in um, you know, plundering the global south and so on. Do they need to demonize themselves to get what they want? Is there a demonization going on to keep these conspiracies alive? I think that there is. And um, I think that one of the, if we sort of just look at it in terms of just as othering, um, mm-hmm. what, we, what we kind of see is um, people can only really maintain being able to look at themselves in the mirror when they are actively part of doing harm um, by sort of separating out uh, other people from their own sense of empathic uh, orbit and basically saying, you know, just sort of basically closing off to the harm that is being done. Mm-hmm. And that can be closing off to the harms being done to other humans or just other living creatures on this earth that we mm-hmm. share with them. Um, so I do think that that kind, of, um, that kind of othering is a major part of the f- sort of fundamental um, shift that we need to, um, that, that we kind of need to move on. So, I mean, in a way, this kind of, we, we could um, have that lead to your final... The start the, the, doing. The, the, the third part. Of yes. It, like what can we start doing mm-hmm. is really um, start to uh, kind of increase or expand our own sense of who we are, of our sense of identity, to really begin to um, connect 
um, compassionately with other people around us, you know, beyond the people that we just used to sort of feeling are part of our circle, like our close friends or our family, but to recognize, you know, we're part of community, to recognize that we are part of all of humanity. And, you know, when we are, we're not separate from these things. So if we're living an affluent life um, and we're uh, just kind of going around saying, well, it's really bad what's happening out there, but it's, it's not me, I'm not doing it, to recognize that part of that affluence has these impacts on the lives of other people with whom we share, you know, our, our species, we, and other people who feel and, have, and, and go through pain and suffering and fear just like we do. And then to expand that even beyond that to all of life and to just recognize that, uh, you know, we actually share uh, big chunks of our DNA, not just with other mammals, but like insects and plants and all of life. We all have this shared common ancestor. The, the life that has evolved on this earth over billions of years and is what has given us the ability to experience this kind of richness of this beautiful world we, we live in today. And so we, we sort of, once you expand your identity to include all of life, you begin to really feel the sense of reciprocity and not just feel like, oh, I should get involved in um, stopping all this environmental destruction because, you know, it's something I just kind of should do. Uh, but you actually start to feel that something I want to do, it's something that I'm driven to do because this is happening to me as part of life. And I think that's that kind of tr- that shift that we, um, as individuals and as a global society, need to experience uh, in, over the next you know next period of time to kind of change the direction around of where our civilization's headed. Uh, well, you're you're kind of segueing into something that I wanted to um, tell you, and then also um, ask you a question. I have been thinking about uh, Be Bold America's purpose, and we've been on there almost, well, in February it'll be two years. And, you know, the purpose was to look at reuniting this country and saving our democracy. And I feel uh, that my show needs a shift. Biden's been elected. Um, I know that we have a long way to go. And we're not out of the woods, and and we could lose our democracy in four or eight years. Um but I do feel that I need a shift. So what we, what I'm looking at um, to launch on Valentine's Day, actually, uh, next year, is to shift the purpose of Be Bold America from discussing how to reunite the country to discussing issues that, um, uh, discussing principles and tools to create more personally meaningful and politically active lives. Because a bold democratic America first requires bold and principle-centered citizens. And so I wanted to look, start talking about um, how individuals can create a more meaningful life, how they can look at being principle-centered instead of anger-centered or uh, enemy, uh, the Democrat is the enemy-centered or, 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 or money-centered, greed-centered, uh, all those things that, that have you put your principles, you know, all your principles just evaporate as you've been talking about with some of the conspiracies. The corporations would be psychopath. The people in them have just given up any personal principles to work in them. So I was going to ask you your thoughts on that as well as 
Uh, what personal principles do you live by, Jeremy? What do you stand for? I mean, we can certainly mm. hear it in your in your um, uh, interview here, and we also know from your books. But anything more you'd like to add? Oh, thank you so much for asking that question, Jill. And I, I just I want to say first, I'm absolutely thrilled to hear about that shift in your sort of mission of where you're going. Thank you. And I think that very notion of um, of meaning um, and living a life of meaning, um, to me, that that's been the sort of central focus of um, my life since I really went through a whole sort of spiritual crisis some years back in my life, but to really live my life in what's truly meaningful, which I believe, um, and in my upcoming book, actually, the web of meaning, uh, I talk about this a lot, but I see it as a really, meaning itself as being a function of connectedness, connectedness with all things, with all parts of our own life, with community, and with with life on earth. And so, in fact, to answer your um, second question about what is it, <clears throat> what I see is sort of my, what really drives my sense of meaning. Yes. Well, I can tell you, I'm, I'm sitting here <clears throat> in my um, studio at home right now, and I'm looking at a framed uh, uh, kind of picture with a statement on it or a question on it that I have on my wall that I look at um, all day as I'm working on my computer and doing interviews or whatever, and it says this, it says, what can I do? for the greatest benefit of all life. Mm. And that, honestly, is how I, um, my intention for myself, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm a human being like all of us and don't necessarily do all the things that I want, but my whole deepest intention is to live my life in that way, to recognize um, that all of us, that we are life. Life is in us, in the trillions of cells within our bodies, that we are actually, um, we are here as a result of life's evolution on this earth. And it's not just that we owe it to life to do what we can for life, but we owe it to ourselves because that's ultimately who we are. And once we recognize that we're living in a civilization that is systematically destroying ourselves in that way, it leads us to just want to get up every morning and just put ourselves into the, the kind of struggle for life against some of these forces that are destroying it. Well, it is just so powerful and such a joy and honor to have you on the program, Jeremy. Uh, we do live in an interdependent world, and I think we keep, most of us, a lot of us keep thinking we're independent and not interdependent. And I also wanted to say to um, our listeners that there is a conspiracy handbook that was created by uh, Bristol University. And if anybody wants one, just email me here at the station. I'd be happy to uh, email it to you. I want to thank the Bold America's program engineer, Emily Donham, to give another, and give another big, huge thank you to today's terrific and bold guest, Jeremy Lent. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, thank you, Jill. It's been great talking with you today. Next time on, on Sunday, December 20th, will be a Best of Be Bold America. Has Trump created the largest cult in America? We'll hear from world-renowned expert on undue influence in cults, 
Stephen Hassan, and from award-winning journalist Tony Rossimono, who earned the Edward R. Morrow Award for his international reporting of the Jamestown tragedy that Sunday, December 20th at 5 p.m. Don't miss it. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. My name is Jill Cody, and thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.